If you track the ongoing weekly education articles that are published, you might know about the Marshall Memo. If not, you should. The Marshall Memo has been published 50 times a year since 2003 and is designed to keep principals, teachers, instructional coaches, and superintendents well informed on current research and best practices. In this leader chat, Jeff talks with Kim Marshall, and as you will notice, they would nerd out on educational issues for hours if they were allowed. Clearly, Kim is well informed and connected to ongoing research and trends in education. Enjoy. Leaders, educators, ladies, gentlemen, how are you? My name is Jeff Rose and welcome to Leader Chat. Today is a special Leader Chat. They're all special, but um, this, this has this like sentimental value and I'll, I'll describe as to why. Um, the, the content today and over the past number of weeks in a row has been intentionally trying to make this shift, right? We have had this incredibly difficult several years in education and still are and our intent over the past couple of months has been, how can we shift our focus past managing COVID chaos and actually now lean in to a higher degree focused on instruction, supporting our educators, our teachers, as it relates to um, impacting the very reason why we all became educators in the first place, the trajectory of lives of kids. So today, um, like I said, we have an incredibly special guest. I'm going to be the topic is this, uh, teacher supervision, coaching, and evaluation with Kim Marshall. Now, many of you know Kim, um, and if you don't, you, you will after today. But I'm going to describe to you, at the very, once we welcome in men, why this is special for me. So Kim Marshall, formerly a Boston teacher, principal, and central office administrator, is now the author of the weekly Marshall Memo and a highly regarded school leadership coach. Kim is one of the nation's leading voices in school leadership and improving instruction. He divides his time between producing the weekly Marshall Memo, coaching principals, and consulting with schools and districts. His goal is to help aspiring and veteran school leaders use their time most effectively, implement best practices, and once again, really focus on the persistent opportunity gaps that we know um, are the case in schools and in our community. So without further ado, let me welcome Kim uh, to our screen as well as audio waves. Kim, it's great to see you. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're watching this live, uh, we had a couple of technical issues. We've dealt with them. Everyone cross your fingers. Uh, so thanks for being so patient, Kim. And the, the, what I want you to know, and you can feel free to respond to it, is um, our mutual friend, Jesse Lee with Rocky, Rocket PD, introduced um, the ability for me to talk to you. And as soon as he did, I said, wait a minute. As Marshall, as in like the Marshall memo? And he said, yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, I got it. I, I got it. I have to talk to Kim. So I started listening, excuse me, reading the Marshall memo on Fridays. Um, I read them Fridays, and that's the day they came out. That's when I read them. And I read them Fridays religiously, starting in probably 2006, maybe 2007. I had moved from earlier being, you know, I was an assistant superintendent and a superintendent my first couple of years doing that work. And it was really difficult managing all of the chaos and the noise and staying focused on what's the most important, which is instruction, of course, teaching and learning. Um, and your work really helped me. 
um, all the time. And so I've just been a fan for a long time, Kim. So thanks so much for being here. And what did I miss in your bio? And just how you doing overall? Oh, uh, you're, you got it. <clears throat> you got the main points. And I'm flattered that you uh, and delighted that you found the memo helpful in your, in your years as a leader. So how has that work um, morphed over the years? Because, I mean, obviously it has. So um, what does that look like now compared to what, how you started it? Maybe just tell us that overall narrative. Sure. So when I was at principal, I had a lot of trouble staying abreast of the reading. <clears throat> I would subscribe to Kaplan and Ed Leadership and Ed Week and so forth, but they would pile up and I would get behind. And, and that was disconcerting. And uh, when I stopped being a principal, I was a principal for 15 years in this elementary school in Boston. I realized that now I have time to read. And so I began to, uh, I talked a couple of uh, friends into supporting the first sort of pilot year of the Marshall Memo 2003 and launched it and got into a rhythm of you know, reading on Sunday, writing on Monday, sending it out to a, a very limited number of subscribers. And I got into a rhythm and it seemed like <clears throat> weekly was about right. My so basically what's, what's changed most, I think, is the number of publications I subscribe to. It's now 60 plus and then a lot of internet stuff. Uh, the amount of time that it takes me to read through them has remained constant because I've now gotten quicker and more proficient at going through 150 articles, skimming quickly and, and spotting the, the eight or 10 that are the ones that you as a school leader, you as a superintendent, you as a lead teacher and instructional coach would really want to know about. So the, the reading time is about seven or eight hours every Sunday is about the same. The writing time is expanded because you know, I, I'm, I'm dealing with more articles and I'm doing really, really trying to get do an intellectually responsible job of summarizing the key points in those articles. If I can find the, the writers, uh, the, the researchers, the principal's uh, email address, I send it to them and I hear back universally that I'm getting it right, which is really satisfying. Uh, <clears throat> so so what's changed most is the number of people I'm reaching. So now I'm reaching you know, people in, in all 50 states, 74 other countries, you know, tens of thousands of people are reading the memo. And there's a lot of forwarding that takes place, which I encourage you know, people to clip out and forward articles to specific teachers or, or people colleagues who might find it interesting, like a librarian who wants that list of, of award-winning books, uh, like this social studies teacher who wants this idea on teaching U.S. history during Black History Month, et cetera. So the one thing I can relate to and appreciate is um, I feel, and I, th I actually think it's getting worse, the, from the leadership perspective, the educator's perspective, uh, they're busier now than they've ever been, right? And so when, when you created this concept, um, it was um, based upon your dilemma that you described, right? And how you navigate and how you stay on top of things when there's so much coming at you. And by the way, that was a long time ago compared to the world now. And not only is there more coming at us, but in the meantime, people's lives are busier than ever. So maybe similar to the overall goal of even this leader chat is how do we Create, find some experts and bring some pragmatic information um, and content to them that's actually digestible. So you, how in these days when you write, has some of your writing had to shift and change in terms of, you know, people are reading sound bites. I can't, I have a hard time getting people to read anything, um, which is why sometimes a, a podcast or a video is important. How have you navigated that? 
Well, I think the model is, the problem is the same. I, I agree that things are more hyper. There's now Twitter, there's Facebook, there's LinkedIn, there's all these other sources of information coming at you electronically, which can be disconcerting. But I think what people want in the end is quality. They want good ideas. They want ideas that ring true. They want proven ideas. And so I think, if anything, my focus as I sit on Sunday reading and, and deciding which are the keepers out of 150 articles that I'm reading and studies, some of them 46, you know, 50 pages long, some of them just a David Brooks column in the New York Times, but trying to see it from the principals and the superintendents and the lead teachers' point of view, what is it that I really need to know? What is it? What is a, a good idea that I heard years ago that, that has actually been discredited? For example, learning styles is something that's been discredited. What is a new idea that's come over the transom that I really need to uh, get out there? Uh, what are just good stories, you know, just good stories about teachers who are doing amazing things. Uh, I have a somewhat skeptical view of educational research. I think a lot of researchers write for other researchers, and that's one reason why their, their prose is rather turgid and jargon-filled and so forth. So my job is also when I see something really worthwhile, like this fascinating study this week of why teachers of color are actually doing more effective job with, with kids than, than other teachers, you know, a very, you know, to come out of a Brown Annenberg study, taking that 56 page paper and pulling out what are the specific things that those teachers are doing that are making them so effective with kids and how can that be built into training for all teachers? I, I imagine that your perspective on education um, just continues to change dramatically. I mean, number one, I sometimes I have a hard time navigating some sometimes just the overall guilt of not being in the trenches anymore and doing the work. Uh, but at the same time, now I have more capacity to follow the trends of even just some of our members and some of their challenges, which really shifts the way I think about leadership and education uh, in general. I imagine it's that times 50 for you. So um, your knowledge must be just vast. It's amazing. Well, I have humility about it, too, because there's things that I don't see that I don't get. And I, at the end of every memo, I say, if you have ideas, if I miss something, please, please let me know. But the other thing that keeps me honest is, first of all, I have two uh, children who are teachers. My son teaches high school history in Philadelphia. Our daughter teaches seventh grade English here in Boston, Boston Public Schools. And, and, and the other thing is I'm on the road and in schools a lot. Uh, for a while, it was, it was remote. Now I'm back in schools again. And that keeps me honest, too, because I can see the things that, that teachers are, and, and that the school leaders are dealing with uh, every day. So um, you've also really honed this expertise in supervision, coaching, and evaluation. Um, tell us about that work. I mean, how did it go from right, this, um, you know, you're obviously a generalist in so many things, but you're now you're, you're very focused in these specific areas. Can you talk us through a little bit about that work? Sure. So as a principal, uh, I was about three or four years into my principalship, and I realized that the traditional teacher evaluation model, that is the full lesson observation, the pre-observation conference, the full lesson observation, the detailed note-taking, the post-conference, the write-up, and so forth, that that four-hour process was simply not working. And I was able to persuade teachers in our school, the Mather School in Boston, to shift to a completely different model, to short, frequent, unannounced visits, followed by always by a face-to-face -face debrief conversation, fairly all fairly brief. And then years later, I got into the idea of a brief summary of that sent electronically afterward. And that idea worked really well in our school. Our union people were very skeptical at first, but they got into it and they really enjoyed it and, and appreciated it. Never a grievance, never a problem with it. 
So then I stopped being a principal and began to look around and give presentations and talk to principals all over the world. And I saw that, that, that the old method, the traditional method of teacher supervision and evaluation was still in most schools. And people, I found people were very cynical about it, very discouraged about it. You can't fight city hall, but they did it. And it took up enormous amounts of their time. And so I began to advocate, wrote an article in Kappen, wrote a second article in Kappen, wrote a book about it, the second edition of the book, which, uh, which is out there being read a lot. And then began to do a lot of consulting with districts on uh, trying to, to, to get people to take the leap of faith into a very different and much more effective way of using. I calculate that principals spend about 17 full school days in a school year with a traditional method. So that time is a huge opportunity cost for the things that they could be doing with that time. So as I've read for the Marshall Memo over the last 18 plus years, I've been watching, of course, very carefully for the writing and the research on teacher evaluation. And I'm very discouraged to see that there's very little that's changed over these years. And then there was the whole detour of value-add measures and all the other stuff that I'm sure your, your readers, or your listeners are very familiar with. And so I really uh, watch for articles, summarize good articles, pull together the best thinking and continue to advocate for a much better, more effective system. And also, of course, we're working with teacher teams. The whole PLC process is not working very well. So getting that working well is in addition. So let's, let's spend some time, uh, you and I, just delving into this frustration. <laughs> because um, over the years, there have been you know, innovations, tools created, um, and you know, a lot of opportunities for change as it relates to supporting teachers via evaluations, uh, coaching, et cetera. Um, in the meantime, uh, and, and there are pockets of excellence, and we know that, right? There are some incredible schools and districts doing some very impressive work. Um, however, generally speaking, when we go and take a global approach and, and look deep into this topic on how teachers are being supported and guided as professionals, um, I, I still grow concerned about our, uh, our, our inability to actually uh, change dramatically when that is a need. Um, just talk to us. Are you seeing the same thing? Or maybe are you uh, hopeful? Or maybe what are you hopeful about? But maybe let's just wrestle with this maybe frustration about maybe the lack of change via, in contrast to the opportunity that they have. Well, you mentioned uh, in, at the beginning of what you were just saying about the, the innovations. For example, putting a teacher evaluation rubric on an, on an iPad, on a tablet, and having a principal come into a classroom and score the teacher in real time. Now, that seems like a clever, time-efficient way of using technology, uh, but it turns out <laughs> it's not a very good idea at all. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of bandwidth to go into a classroom, to take in what's happening, to talk to kids, to look at their work, to watch what the teacher's doing. And I think it's simply you cannot do that while also, you know, doing some kind of computer scoring of the teacher. So that's a blind alley that hasn't worked out well, although it was clever and, and certainly well-intentioned. Uh, you know, but also what discourages me most is the, is the tenacity of the traditional model, the full lesson observation, which is very infrequent, which is often very inauthentic because the teacher knows they're coming and the teacher puts on the best possible show for the principal. You know, what principals have to know is what's happening on a daily basis. What are the regular practices that teachers are using? And, you know, the, the only way to do that, I think, is short, frequent, unannounced visits, sampling the 900 lessons that a teacher teaches every year. And then immediately following up, you know, within the same day or the next day, if possible, with a face-to-face -face conversation in which you can broaden your window and get into what, what's the teacher thinking about, what's the teacher excited about, what's, what are the t problems the teacher's encountering with technology, with student behavior, which, by the way, is a huge issue right now, is student behavior. A lot of kids are dysregulated based on their two years, uh, you know, away from physical contact. 
uh, not to mention the academic uh, uh, deficits that are out there. So what discourages me is people who are, who are cynical and stuck with a system that they know doesn't work. You know, teachers know it doesn't work, administrators don't know, and the huge cost of 17 full, you know, what I say in my presentations now is to continue to use the traditional model is the, is the equivalent of locking your principal in a dungeon for 17 full days of the school year, which is, I think, not a good thing. Yeah, that's, that's not a good thing. A, a dungeon can't be a good thing. So, <laughs> so, so uh, when you look to the future, what is what out there is providing some rays of hope relative to potential change or are you seeing that this opportunity um, amidst kind of this chaotic time in education do you think is there a, um, a light at the end of the tunnel relative to how we may use this to propel some things forward that we haven't been able to or had the urgency to do in the past well, what's exciting to me is when I see a district, you know, adopting an effective system and the teachers immediately love it. Teachers, they're lonely. They're sensitive creatures. They're in their classrooms yeah. work really, really hard, almost everybody. And to have an, an intelligent adult come into their room on a regular basis and watch and be a good listener and, and you know, and smell the roses and, and talk to kids and look at the work and then talk to the teacher afterward, a fundamental uh, issue of respect for the teacher is talking to the teacher afterward and then really exploring. So what was working here? Did you get your intended results? Let's look at the work the kids did. Have you thought about this or have you thought about what your colleague next door is doing? And then going from there into the teacher team meetings, the PLC meetings, you know, uh, the way they're supposed to work, of actually looking together at student work. When I see people doing that, and I've got a number of districts around the country that have embraced this, and I'm not the only one who's advocating this. There actually are are, are seven books out there about this about this practice. So I think that is you know that is the work. Uh, I love it when people you know people almost always respond well. You know, at first they're skeptical. What can you see in ten minutes in a classroom? Then you show a video. You know, I do this all the time. And people say, oh, my gosh, you know, the amount that happened in that 10 minutes, the amount that we have to talk about, and then how do we focus in on this, the things that are working and the things that need to be improved and how the teacher team can get into this. And then having sat in on the teacher team, then when you go into a classroom, it's like you have 3D glasses on. That's a, that's a term that Paul Bamrick Santoyo uses. You're a, better, you're a better and more perceptive observer. And the subject is always, as you said earlier, is always student learning. Like, are students learning? Are all students learning? What are the equity dimensions here? This uh, concept of teachers uh, being lonely and and seeking uh, and 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 looking forward to feedback, I think is a hundred percent legitimate. I think it actually always has been, uh, maybe more so today. Um, real quick, I'll tell you about this uh, time I was in China when I was superintendent of Beaverton School District in Oregon. We did an exchange, and I got to go to China for almost a month and tour their schools. I was in a particular classroom, watching the teacher. Class is over, and via a translator, I went to go talk to the teacher and just give some general feedback on what I saw. And um, within a couple minutes, this, this teacher just starts crying. She's bawling right in front of me. So, of course, I'm concerned that I said something offensive um, or you know, culturally insensitive. I wasn't sure. Um, via the translator, I asked, are you okay? And did I say something that potentially hurt your feelings? And she said, no, but... Uh, no one's ever talked to me after I taught. <laughs> and um, and I, I've reflected on that, and I think that while um, we don't see maybe as much isolation in some of our schools, we still see a lot of it. A lot of it. Now, 
I believe teachers are the biggest influence when it comes to impacting kids. Well, we know that. The teacher is in schools, of course, beyond the family unit. unit. However, I don't believe in the chaos theory. You can put great teachers in a building. If without a great leader, um, they will never meet their capacity or potential. So that being the case, knowing what you know and how you advise schools, how would you describe what your current advice for school and district leaders is right now, specific to this topic? So I, I think, you know, the main thing is get into classrooms. <laughs> you know, it's such a moving story that you just told about the, the teacher in China. By the way, one practice that uh, some Chinese schools use is to have a camera in every classroom and the principal supervised from their offices. So talk about an unannounced visit. <laughs> Apparently, they're not closing the loop, at least in the case of this teacher, you know, talking, having the respect sure. and, and the entity to talk to the teacher in person. Uh, so I think getting into classrooms and being very organized and disciplined about it. I mean, so so what, the way I put it is that every teacher should be visited in a meaningful way at least once a month. So about 10 visits, 10 of these mini observations per year. And and in a school with 25 teachers, which uh, under a principal or assistant principal, which is a, a pretty typical ratio, that comes to about two mini observations a day. And so I'm talking about two 10-minute visits fitted in in some place in a very busy day. And I know how busy a principal is. Uh, and then the two, the, then about two 10-minute conversations, ideally in the teacher's classroom when the kids aren't there. And then 10 minutes spent on a very brief electronics uh, summary. And there's a, a wonderful program from Tennessee called TFL that, that keeps the principal to 1,000 characters. You can't write more than 1,000 characters, which is sort of a, you know, a beefy paragraph. And it takes about 10 minutes to write. So you can fit that, that, you know, that, that, what is it, 10 times 10 times, 10 plus 10 plus 10, that's 30 minutes. You can fit two of those 30-minute things into a school day, even in a very, very busy school. So that's job number one. Job number two is getting those teacher teams, the fourth grade team, the algebra team, the world history team, getting those meeting on a consistent basis with good facilitation so that the real meaningful work gets done there. And it will not happen naturally. Rick DeFore, the, the, the granddaddy of the, of the PLC, used to say that that the real work of PLC is an, is an unnatural act. It's, it's, it's something that will not come naturally to most teacher teams because of the reticence of sharing, being vulnerable, of sharing your practices, and, and, and admitting when sometimes something wasn't working. Uh, Karen Chenoweth, in her new book, uh, Districts That Succeed, an amazing book, uh, has broached this idea that the best, the best line you want to hear, the best question you want to hear in the school is, your kids did better than mine. What did you do? And if you can hear that question from teacher to teacher, from principal to principal, from superintendent to superintendent, that's golden. So getting to that point, and then of course doing all the other management work of the principal, but but fitting those things in, being very disciplined. This is the big rocks theory. You got to put your big rocks in first, and the big rocks are getting into classrooms in a meaningful way, <clears throat> uh, getting into teacher teams, and, and orchestrating those in a meaningful way, and then constantly having the conversation being about who's learning. How much are they learning? What are they learning? And how can we constantly improve teaching and learning? You and I have been uh, following some of the same uh, authors and educational thinkers for some time. I can, I can tell just by what you just described. Um, I would agree. I think one of the dilemmas with educators deprivatizing their practice is, you know, teaching is personal, right? It is personal. And whether you're doing extremely well or you're struggling, it's hard to personally describe to colleagues how you are struggling because it, you know, you teach based upon who you are. Your person is in your work. Um, so that makes it difficult and without facilitation, like you say, um, it can often collaboration, which should be intense and focused, 
shifts into kind of this more of a chit-chat that does not impact instruction. So I'm, I'm fully on board with that. And I'm curious about um, this kind of pre and during, but most importantly, kind of post-COVID era. Um, I have a lot of fears and concerns that we are seeing leaders being pressured to shift back uh, to where we once were. Number one, there's some public pressure on wanting to be like it was. In the meantime, there are kids that we've seen gaps widen in some cases, and people call it learning loss. I don't see it as learning loss necessarily, but there are these gaps, and so we have to give kids more time, more route instruction to keep that, catch them up, which, by the way, we know doesn't work. So I'm curious, what is your like post-COVID almost thinking as it relates to how we move forward as opposed to you know, how we spin on the challenges of the past couple of years? Because I know leaders are struggling with this. Right? They're Absolutely. saying, I don't have as much time as I used to have. And even prior to there, they would say, I don't have as much time as I want to to be in classrooms. So hmm. how has this shifted for you kind of post-COVID? What is your thinking? Uh, so a couple of pretty concrete things. I'm working with some principals in Pueblo, Colorado, uh, doing remote coaching. And, and one thing they're delighted about is that they are no longer, uh, for most of the district meetings, the principals meeting, they're long, no longer driving long distances to the central office. They're doing them on Zoom. So we've learned how to do Zoom meetings. And, and for many purposes, they can be very good. Another thing is what I call the lonely singleton. Uh, in a moderate-sized high school, there might, you know, might only be one physics teacher. And that person is a lonely singleton, doesn't have anyone in the school to talk to about the, you know, really nerd out on physics. So now, and this was possible before, of course, but very few people did it. Now we know how to get that physics teacher linked up to three or four other physics teachers, perhaps in the state, uh, you know, and, and actually have a, a real conversation about curriculum planning, unit planning, essential questions, common assessments, and so forth. So I think that is a, a big change. Uh, those are two big changes. But I think, you know, it's going to take a couple of years, really, to get back to anything like normal. And the challenge is, as you suggested in your question, the challenge is how to make the new normal better. Uh, and I think one thing is, is, is last time observations. You know, people found that very awkward during, during the pandemic, uh, very awkward. Um, uh, one other thing about classroom visits is, is, uh, is spotting the things that really aren't going well that don't show up on the radar screen of the traditional system. Uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was an extraordinary New York Times op-ed piece by an eighth grade girl in a New York City public school saying, basically, this is terrific because in my in-person school, the classes were out of control. And, and now I can, you know, I can ask my teacher questions and I can have office hours with my teacher and I can, you know, I can actually focus on the instruction the teacher is doing and the teacher is doing better. So but to me, the real question is, why, was the, why were those classes out of control before the pandemic? And the answer is because the principal was probably in their office doing email or dealing with crises or dealing with kids sent to the office rather than getting around the school and seeing what the problems were and dealing with them. And I'm not, I'm not talking about firing teachers. I'm talking about helping teachers get better at classroom management. There's a state of the art there. So I hope that that will be another thing as we gradually come back, as we deal with the social emotional issues now, as we deal with all these other issues, that we'll get back to a, a much more active principal out of their office in classrooms most of the time. I do want to talk about one other thing, which is you know, principals are the key person. Is, you know, teachers are doing the real work. Principals are, are orchestrating and, and creating the culture and the environment where teachers can do the real work. But, uh, but, but, but we have now a much better handle on curriculum on what should be taught at each grade level. I think Common Core has been a huge help there, whatever it's called in Oklahoma and different states. You know, we have basically 
pretty close now to a national curriculum on the what, not the how-to, but the what. And I think that's a huge thing. Uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about the Holocaust, teaching the Holocaust, anti-Semitism, and so forth. And, and I think most people would agree that this needs to be taught at some point. So we're not talking about a personalized, individualized curriculum where the, if the kids are deciding what's going to be taught. You know, the, the, there are things that need to be taught. It's, it, maybe that's an eighth grade part of the curriculum. Maybe it's a specific thing there. Uh, but it's not enough to just have good principals turning around schools. The district plays an absolutely critical role. And if you have superintendents who are, who are on this call or who are going to be on the podcast, you know, one of the most critical jobs of the superintendent is putting good principles in place and supporting them. When I was a principal, you're going to appreciate this, Kim. I had a mentor. Um, she was not attached to the district. She was just a friend of mine that I asked to mentor me. She would call the school randomly and ask for the secretary or the PA, the person out in front, and then she would ask where I was. She'd say, you know, where's, where's Jeff Rose? And they would say, well, you know, he's in his office, or whatever maybe he's doing. And then she'd say, well, how long has he been in there? She would gather this intel, and then she would ask to be connected. She would get on Whoa. the phone with me, and then she'd say, so um, how's, how's your day? I would tell her. She said, so have you, have you been out in classrooms? And I knew that I had to be honest with her. I'd say, well, you know, no. Um, she said, why not? I said, you know, listen, I'm, I'm trying to get all these things done as fast as I can so I can get in there. I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it there, I think. And she would always say, can you please stop it and flip your dilemma? I'd say, you know, what do you mean? She'd say, leave now. Go to classrooms. And by the way, try to figure out how you're going to do those other things later as opposed to first, so that you can, because if that's the case, you'll never get in there, right? And so she actually pushed me and taught me to flip the dilemma. And the dilemma is, how do I get those things done after hours, as opposed to prioritize them prior to being in the classroom and doing what's most important, right? Supporting the classroom environment. It was, it was, also, I was concerned also about you're not burning yourself out by working all night, which is another issue. But it, you put things it is, it is. I was on a, on a Zoom call yesterday with a group of uh, parochial school uh, and religious school educators in New York City. It's been organized by a group at, uh, at one of the universities, Fordham University. And one of the principals had a problem practice she presented to the group, which was basically, I'm just too busy. I'm, I'm just not getting the important stuff done. And uh, a suggestion came up in the group. What about putting, uh, during the school day, when the kids are in, in the building, what about putting an out-of-office message on your email that says, I am in classrooms and in teacher team meetings now. If this is urgent, you can call this number, you know, my assistant. Uh, but, but otherwise, I'll get back to you at 3 o'clock this afternoon. And that, uh, this really appealed to this, this uh, principal. She said, wow, what a great idea. If I could just buffer the emails that are pouring in all day long, and if I could train the people who are emailing me at 10 o'clock in the morning and expecting me to respond immediately, if I could train them to either solve the problem themselves, go to another person, a first responder, and deal with that, or wait until later on, and maybe the problem will be solved. That would make a huge difference to my school day. Well, if, if ever need be, we, you and I should talk. I, I do have a, an email system that I learned over the years that I've actually used and, and done some teaching on an email system to help some administrators know how to navigate the chaos of email. And by the way, it's getting worse and not easier. Um, okay, so maybe last question because I, I want to be careful of your time. Um, most of our processes, most of our processes with supporting leaders, superintendents, assistant superintendents, deputies, they're the team, the executive team, so to speak, um, is roundtable processes. We do very little talking at. We're connective tissue, 
and we create an environment and systems and protocols, facilitators, for them to help each other, which I believe um, is the best form of PD, um, very much aligned to, say, DeFore's work back in the day. That being the case, let's pretend you and I are at a round table, and we are with some of our superintendents, assistant superintendents, and we were having this discussion aligned to your expertise on supervision, coaching, evaluation. What would be your kind of, for them, you've already mentioned really good principles. I think that's critical. Expand on that or just what would be your brass tacks, pragmatic, here's my advice for you right now as it relates to how to improve in this particular area. Well, two suggestions. Uh, first of all, I would suggest that a superintendent, when they visit a school, that they always do a couple of co-observations with the principal. So you go into a classroom together, you spend 10, 15 minutes just you know, looking around, looking at the, talking to the students, looking at the work, watching the teacher, looking at what's on the walls, et cetera, et cetera, and then do a couple of those and then go back to the office and debrief. And the superintendent perhaps role-playing the teacher. Okay, so you know this fourth grade teacher, you know this history teacher, uh, you know, just give me, uh, you know, talk to me as you would to this teacher after this short observation. So that's the way that a superintendent can know, first of all, do my principals have the chops to do this? Do they have good, a good eye for instruction? Do they have good human skills in debriefing? And, and if they don't, how can I bring them up to speed? And secondly, you get a much better feel of what's going on in school. So that's, that's number one. And some superintendents do this instinctively, but I would strongly urge co-observations in every single school visit, and of course, frequent school visits. The second thing I would recommend is uh, one thing we haven't talked about the Marshall Memo is a couple of years ago, my co-author, Jen David Lang, and I put together two volumes of the best of the Marshall Memo in, in 22 uh, topics, including teacher supervision and evaluation, pulling together from all 18 years of the Marshall Memo, the very best articles and putting them together. And then the Gates Foundation gave us a grant to create a website, thebestofmarshallmemo.org, um, which, which, which has these all 22 chapters of these two books free online, completely free. So you can click on get a PDF of the chapter on differentiation, the chapter on race and equity, the chapter on teacher supervision. So uh, pulling that out and then with a group of superintendents, having them do a jigsaw with the chapter, pull it up. Each person reads one article okay, silently. The memo, memo article summaries can be read in five minutes. And then they either work in small groups or each person shares out to the whole group the key insights from each of these 12 articles in the, in the Best of Marshall Memo website. So I think that would be a great process. Again, to, how do you cast a wide net, bring the best ideas into a group and get, get a really robust discussion going on, on what they can do with those ideas? Bestofmarshallmemo.com, is that correct? Dot org. Dot org, excuse me. We'll make no, sure, sir. we're gonna make sure to make that, that resource available. So thank you. Uh, uh, let me just double check here. Uh, oops, no, 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 let's stay on page. Uh-oh, we lost, we lost Kim. We lost Kim. Now, um, he was, he, he's researching, <laughs> he, he was backing up his, his own claim on the website. So potentially he, he zooms back in and, and to this meeting we'll see. Um, so, oh, here he comes. So everyone take a deep breath. Kim is going to be right back with us. Fortunately, uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I would never do what Kim just did because I'm not smart enough. You're back. I, I, I <laughs> was very Oh, and your volume, your volume's going crazy. So, um, now, 
Now, it's a, it's a slight tech issue, but I will say this, and hopefully, uh, I know you can hear me at least. Uh, Kim, um, I could talk to you for hours, and I don't think that there can be anyone as well-read as you as it relates to the ongoing educational research being put out, and your ability to synthesize that um, impacts people and impacted me. And um, I, I want to say thank you on behalf of all the educators not just for this, but what you have done for me and others throughout the years. Um, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you today. So I really appreciate you. Great, he's giving me the high sign. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Um, teachers, educators, leaders, be well.